taken a great beginning. As Steve was talking about what a privilege it is for us to be together and uh, share and stimulate one another to love and good works, I just want to build on that a little bit and remind you of what a privilege it is to be in an environment of Christian education. And this week, starting the semester with a Bible conference is appropriate because everything that we do here is built on the truth of the Word of God. And that is not true in secular education. I'll give you an illustration. There's a professor at the University of Alabama, his last name is Bishop. He teaches, he has a PhD, and he teaches um, in the physical education department, he actually teaches some kind of therapy courses in terms of training people for physical education. He is a committed Christian. As a committed Christian, he begins his classes at the semester, when it begins, by saying, I have a Christian worldview, I believe in the Bible, I just want you to know that. I am a Christian, and uh, I'd be glad to talk to anybody personally about that, but I just want you to know that because as we go through the things that we learn in this class, you may detect that, uh, that that's the case, and I just don't want you to have any doubt about it. And he said, furthermore, he said, uh, in non-class hours, I'm available to talk to you about issues like that. And uh, I even have a discussion group for those who might be interested in a biblical worldview. And we meet, I don't know, sometime during the week in, in an off-campus environment. And that was it. Then he went ahead and with uh, great capability taught his classes. Well, eventually uh, the word got to the dean of the college that this was what his pattern was. And some people began to complain about the fact that he was saying he was a Christian, though it really didn't have any specific bearing on the notes that he gave in class. And so they called him before the dean, and they said to him, you can no longer tell anybody you're a Christian. This is just in a matter of the last couple of years at the University of Alabama. Now, God is dead a lot of places, but usually we don't think of God being dead in Alabama. That's sort of Bible Belt place. And that's just the problem. It's okay if you want to do that at Harvard, because God is so dead in most people's minds that it's going to be looked on as some kind of irrational, bizarre behavior. But if you're still trying to keep God alive in Alabama, that could be a difficulty because uh, the churches are so strong. So they basically shut him down. They said, you cannot talk about your Christianity. You cannot off-campus uh, uh, hold a Bible study because you are a faculty member of this institution. So he filed a lawsuit against the University of Alabama and uh, went to a federal court. And the federal court ruled in his favor and said on the basis of the freedom of speech in America, if he wants to tell people he's a Christian, he can tell them he's a Christian as long as he competently fulfills his task as a professor in the university, as a tenured professor, then uh, there's really no problem with what his personal view is. Um, so it seemed as though all was well and he could go back to saying he was a Christian and giving people a biblical worldview, which really bottom line means that the world and all that's in it was created by God and not the result of evolution. Um, but the university appealed to the federal appeals court, and the case was overturned. And the federal appeals court said he cannot do that. He cannot say he's a Christian. He cannot hold off-campus Bible study. He cannot offer himself to students who would like to know more about a worldview, because that's in violation of what the administration of the university wants. This is in the United States of America, and this is not in the, in the dark northeastern part. This is in the state of Alabama, where... Uh, there are many churches and many Christians, but the university establishment wants to stamp out any biblical truth. And the reason for that is not intellectual, it's not rational, it's moral or immoral. Uh, the fool has said in his heart, Psalm 14 says, there is no God. 
And then the next part of the verse says, he says it because he's corrupt. People don't want God because they don't want anybody telling them what they can or cannot do. It's not intellectual, it's moral. And the question you have to ask is, if you do not believe in God, and if you do not acknowledge the Bible, can you even be educated? At the most profound level, you can't learn how to live. You don't know the meaning of the universe. You can't answer the simplest question about where this thing came from. And you can't answer the question about where it's going. And you cannot answer the question about what is right and what is wrong and what is a meaningful relationship and what is not. If you don't have a standard and if you don't have God, you don't have a Bible, you don't have a standard. And yet that's supposed to be education. At the Master's College, we're committed to the fact that the foundation of everything is the word of the living God. First of all, the living and true God and then his word. And on that, you build everything, absolutely everything. I would commend for you in your extracurricular reading, if you get a chance, by Philip E. Johnson's book, Reason in the Balance. Philip E. Johnson teaches at uh, Berkeley, or as he affectionately calls it, Berserkly. Uh, Philip E. Johnson teaches in the law school there, has for many years. He's a Harvard Law graduate. He's an absolutely brilliant mind, one of the great minds of our time. And uh, as a Christian who is a creationist, who believes in the Bible, he is a very, very uh, unique person in the environment that he is in. And he shows in the book, Reason in the Balance, how naturalism, how scientific materialism, atheism, has corrupted science, law, and education. It's a, it's a really, really important book in our time. And he's, uh, he's reaching into some very interesting areas with it. But all of that just to say that the Bible is not incidental to what we do in an educational institution. The Bible is absolutely and completely foundational. Everything that we believe is predicated on the revelation of the Scripture. All the standards that we hold to. The great scientific reality of all realities is that the first cause is God. And everything goes back to that. The great reality of, of the moral world and the social world and the psychological world and all those aspects of human behavior that we deal with all the time is that God has defined man in the appropriate terms. He is to be understood as indicated in the Scripture as to his problem and its solution. So everything we do goes back to Scripture. One of our professors uh, was saying the other day that there was a discussion among some of our people here, and uh, someone said, we're trying to teach our students to think, to which this uh, professor, uh, professor replied, no, we're not trying to teach our students to think. We're trying to teach them to think biblically. And that's really true. This is at the very heart and foundation of everything this institution is. And that's why it's important for us to sit back and hear the Word of God from gifted men who love us, who believe in us, and who want to be a part of your life. We're very, very excited to have you guys with us. Let's welcome all of our speakers. They're all right down here in the front. Glad you're here. And we remember, uh, we remember those messages from last year. And uh, the Lord used them in our lives, and he's going to do that again. Well, to kick things off, uh, no one could be better to, to be the leadoff hitter than my dear and precious and treasured friend, Len Crowley. Len is a Pasadena guy, uh, sort of raised over there in one of those big mansions in Pasadena. And uh, his father at one time was the mayor of Pasadena and the head of the Rose Parade and all of that kind of stuff. And, and Len was a great football player at Carleton College where he graduated. That's the kind of the Harvard of the Midwest up there in Minnesota. Went to Talbot Seminary, graduated at Talbot Seminary, and then the Lord took him to the city of Detroit, actually outside of Detroit Highland Park, 
to the great Highland Park Baptist Church where he's been pastor for five years. That is a great church. If you know anybody in that area, send them there. They have tremendous ministries, great worship and wonderful teaching. And let's welcome Pastor Lynn Crowley. Lynn. <laughs> Thank you, John. Can I use this guy here? Well, that's a stirring uh, welcome. I'm grateful for that. Uh, also, you know, I'm a little bit embarrassed to recognize with the way that you, John, have just introduced the whole notion of standing firm on the Bible and how central that is to our thinking and how important and vital it is. And I'm a little, I brought my smallest Bible and I feel a little that I didn't bring the big enough book, you know, to show proper... Uh, it's a daunting task, I will tell you, knowing these good friends who will follow me to preach first, leadoff hitter. I, I was hoping for a walk and on four pitches. And, um, but I guess there is some advantage because any text that I may go to and explain in a certain fashion or any illustration that I may use that they were planning on using in the future, they have to make the shift. I don't have to make the shift, right? So that's to my advantage. I love the fact we're going to talk about the love of God at least for three days. Boy, we should talk about that all the time. And I want to begin by inviting you to study with me this morning from Titus chapter 2. So if you look with me at Titus chapter 2. Titus 2 verses 11 and 12 is where I'd like to pause this morning. It's a place that has really fundamentally changed me as I pondered it. Paul writes this to his friend Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. To talk about the grace of God, one of the marvelous aspects of God's love is a great treasure. The grace of God is a word that is so familiar to us who are believers in Christ that we, we, we throw off Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 8 and 9 rather quickly. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not because of works, so no man would boast. We focus and rely closely on grace. In fact, a man named R.P. Hansen has written what I consider an acceptable definition of the word, this loveliest word in the Christian vocabulary. Grace means free, unmerited, unexpected love of God, all its benefits, delights, and comforts which flow from it. It means that while we were sinners and enemies, he treated us as sons and heirs. I like the way he said that. But when we talk about the word grace, what do we really mean? Uh, we know the theological definition. How do we actually apprehend it? How do we experience it? See, I'm a little bit concerned in American Christianity that when we talk about the idea of grace, what we mean is God kind of tops off our tank, just fills in the shortfall. You know, I mean, in reality, things are pretty good in this country, despite the things that may go on in Alabama. This is an all right place. You know, we're doing pretty well. We've got enough money. This isn't Bosnia, after all. And I'm afraid that in the mindset of some people, we forget how wicked and evil we really are left to ourselves. The Apostle Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. He says, in me dwells no good thing. 
the greatest prophet in the Old Testament proclaims that all his righteousness is his filthy rags. He sees himself clearly and properly before God. And I guess that's the place we really need to begin to talk about grace, to remember how amazing it is that God would even bother with us that we could be the recipients of this wonder, this grace, this forgiveness that should always be a constant source of amazement to us. Well, how do we experience it? Titus 2.12 tells us that when you experience it by denying ungodliness and worldly desires and living righteously and sensibly and godly in this present age, a common Bible theme of putting off that which contaminates and that which holds us and a putting on of the things that are from God, the, the negative side, the positive side, taught to say no on one hand, taught to say yes on the other hand, as if you're clearing the field in order to plant a new crop. What we're taught is to deny that ungodliness, deny those worldly desires. Those are the things that, as you probably picked up along the way in your Christian experience, repudiating that former lifestyle, the habitual disregard and indifference toward God. We we're told that men and women just didn't want to acknowledge God as God anymore, Romans chapter 1 says. They got tired of it. They didn't want to thank him for who he was. And so their foolish heart was darkened and they, God gave them over to themselves to think if they, see if they could figure it out on their own. It's also releasing the preoccupation with the things of this life that he's suggesting. And I call it the big P's, possessions, prestige, pleasure, and power. Aren't those the things that typically come up in our conversation? John calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. James says those are the things that cause fights and dissensions and frustrations in chapter 4. And in contrast to that, Paul says to Titus, now instead live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. And he's really talking about an inward relationship and then an outward relationship and then an upward relationship. Clear, self-controlled thinking, righteous, honorable, honorable behavior and living before other men and women and then de devout reverence and loving obedience for God. It's really living every day in quorum Deo, which is the Latin phrase for simply living everything under the gaze of God that he's present in our life. In some, really, it's what Jesus said when he said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Think clearly biblically, do right and justly, and love God. Set aside those things which contaminate. Put off the, the self-protective thoughts and desires, the tendencies of the habituated flesh, and pick up, as it were, the cross beam of Christ. Because really the cross was a symbol of submission to Roman authority. Any criminal would have to carry the crossbeam with a Roman signature on it, indicating that they were now finally, at least in, the, in their death and execution, submitting to the authority of Rome. In this case, the cross would be the submission to the authority of the person of Christ. And then he says, follow me. Get rid of sin, do what he says, and go after him. Now, those are the things that are taught. Paul's pretty clear on that. Deny ungodliness, worldly desires and then to be instructed how to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. How are we taught those things? Well, I think grace delivers us the information, gives to us the scripture, tells us the way we should go, it gives us that raw data. I think that grace also describes for us the ethic. We understand the truth of God's word and our forgiveness and the consequent obligation to that truth and to live in a certain fashion, even if the University of Alabama or the 
Berkeley or any other place determines to tell us to do otherwise, we still live according to the truth of God, for it is a morality, it's an ought that is contained in it. It's compelling on our lives. Paul, in fact, writes about it in Romans chapter 6. Let me just read it for you. Romans 6, verses uh, 1 to 3. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? Do we not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? And then verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's a certain ethic, a certain truth now. We're to live that out and to, and to, and to reckon ourselves dead to that kind of life. Grace also demands for us a sense of gratitude. We recognize that we've been given a new kind of life, a life that we have to live out, um, uh, to live in gratitude, perpetual thanksgiving. And as verse 11 points out, the grace of God has come to us to give us salvation. That's the natural kind of thing we should respond with is our thanks. So grace gives us some sense of what the Bible tells us and the ethic that's there and the truth that's there and the gratitude that's called from our life and I'm dying up here. Something's wrong with this. I don't know if you're as bored as I am. And here I am coming at 8.30 in the morning. I'm supposed to make a good shot off the bat to start off this conference on the love of God and you know what I just told you is true but it was lifeless, wasn't it? Something about it that's it's not making it for me. Is it making it for you? I mean, all that stuff is true. Okay, I got the Word of God. I know the way. I, I, I have uh, the sense of the ethic. I know the truth of God. I got this gratitude thing down. How about if I just go ahead and do it? Okay, do it. If I asked you to do that and walk out of here, it would be a little hollow. As if somehow maybe I really am talking about our performance of get these things right and now walk in a fashion that's godly and righteously and sensibly and it's on you to do that. You know, your effort, your performance. Get rid of the bad stuff, embrace the good stuff. Paul says to Galatians, oh foolish Galatians. Have you begun in the spirit of God? and the love of God and the grace of God and are now going to be perfected by his flesh, by this flesh. You see, I'm afraid that we're very prone to the short-sighted notion that the Bible's just an instruction book and we have the, the details down and we order them in our systematics in such a way and, and, and God has us understand and okay, now I know where I am and I know how the things fit together and, and Lord, you just come alongside if you would and, and top me off and finish me up here so that I'm, I'm kind of uh, set up in your grace. And I know all these things are true and I feel that it's my obligation to follow them and the focus ends up being on me. And I'm afraid that it breeds self-righteousness if I really go after these things and try and hold them up and I'll be better than that person over there or this person over here. Or maybe I'll live my Christian life just in defeat because I can't, I can't embrace these. Are, these are perfect standards. It's like reading all the books you can on nutrition and figuring out all the, the disciplines that are necessary and maybe even trying to live by some of those principles and maybe even succeeding to some degree to lower your cholesterol but you know, what you really need is a personal trainer 
because a personal trainer will push you and take you way beyond where you will ever want to go yourself. Anybody who's played athletics knows the value of a coach saying, one more lap, one more lap. Come on, you can do it. Because he knows we'd stop long short of the goal if we weren't encouraged through the process by some personal trainer to get past our in spite of resistance and our reluctance and all of that. I'm sorry, I skipped right over it. I skipped right over it. See there, verse 11. The grace of God which instructs me and saves me has appeared. I was too impersonal in that early part of the teaching. I was too flat, too two-dimensional. This is a real world, a three-dimensional world we live in. And grace, as it comes to us, is not a concept in a book. It's not an idea. He's a person. And needs to always be understood as a person. See, when you realize that the grace of God in the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, says the apostle. And we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And later on in the same chapter of John, he says, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now it changes for me. Now it suddenly is dynamic for me. The way is not just information in a book. Jesus is the way. Truth is not just an ethical obligation that's bound to me because of a commitment I've made to a religion. Jesus is the truth. And the life that I lead in gratitude is not my life, but his life being lived through me. Jesus is the life. You see, I could never understand the grace of God as a concept unless I could taste it, touch it, smell it, see it, hear it. It had to be personal. How, how would that be for me? Well, the grace of God has a name. His name is Jesus. The grace of God has a face. Jesus' face. What was from the beginning... John writes in 1 John 1, What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld with our hands, and our hands handled concerning the word of life, the life was manifested. We have seen. It's not information anymore. It's not just a book anymore. It's the author who rises to meet us. Paul is saying, Jesus has become my personal trainer to instruct me. He instructs my heart. He renews my mind. He woos me, compels me, corrects me, invites me. Indeed, he even causes me to live his life. Intimately and actively involved because God is at work in me both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3? And the work that he began in Philippians chapter 1, he says, he will perfect, he'll bring it to a good conclusion. Now, let me tell you why this is good for me. This is liberating. 
The love of God now comes to me in a fashion where I'm not dependent on my own wisdom to just glean it from the pages. Oh, I need to have that. I've got to study the scriptures. I need to, to hear from, from pastors and, to, and, to, and to, to read and to, to know the word of God and understand the, the one who is behind it. But now it's not my own wisdom to know what is the next piece of the sequence that I need to mature in my life to walk with Christ. See, he's in my life to grow me in that particular fashion. The God who saved me and all other people is also involved in superintending my spiritual growth. Growing me ultimately to be like him. You see, he both wins you to himself through salvation. And he wants you for himself through sanctification. And he makes you his own. And he will not stop until you are fully his own. I think James says it in chapter 4, verse 5. Do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? Double negative. Do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell within you. Grace becomes now for me a real and dynamic and living, giving relationship with Jesus. Now I want to ask the question again. How do we experience the grace of God? How do we instructed by the grace of God? How does Jesus personally train us in his love and his grace? I want to give you three suggestions. Firstly, Jesus awakens our conscience. When we become believers, the light goes on. Suddenly, we see things in a new way. We're told even in the book of Titus, just jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. It says, He has washed us and regenerated us, renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly. There's something new about our thinking processes, our mind now. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need of anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. 1 John 2, 20 says, You have an anointing from the Holy Spirit you all know. You've already been awakened by Jesus. Your conscience is suddenly awakened. You know, I visualize I, I, the, the, the sense of the, of the Christian life as if your life was a, a room. Maybe, maybe the living room of your house. But this room, before you know Christ, is total darkness. There's no windows open. It's absolutely black. And you kind of feel your way around the room, hoping that you're not going to bump into any misplaced furniture. And when you do, oh, that's when it hurts. And you realize maybe something's not where it ought to have been. It's no longer five paces from the wall. It's some other place. And it's just kind of a blind hunt. But when Jesus awakens your conscience, the light comes on, maybe like on a rheostat, just a little dimly for a moment as you begin to see, oh my goodness, the furniture's all out of place, the couch is over, and you pick it back up and put it against the wall where it belongs and the table back in the center and stick that chair up. And as you're arranging the appropriate things in the, life of your, in the room of your life, the light becomes a little brighter and a little brighter. And you realize, well, all the knickknacks have fallen off the shelf and the table lamp is over and so those little things go back up and now it begins to be more nicely arranged and as you've done that the light comes on all the more and suddenly to your horror you realize there's there's dust everywhere see the increasing awakening of your conscience creates an increasing awareness of sin in your life but it also creates an increasing refinement of your ability to discern that what was it like when you first became a christian 
Now, some of you may have been won to Christ in your, in, in your early years and you were saved from the, the, the degradation and depravity of sin as a five-year-old. Uh, others of us were fortunate enough to come to Christ before we died, but I, I did it at 26, long after I was in college, long after football and other kinds of things. The one distinctive that I recall most graphically when I first became a believer in Jesus Christ was the sudden transformation of my vocabulary. See, I used to have the dirtiest mouth in town. I know it's hard to believe. You know, he's so nicely dressed. How could he be that? That's true. Take that on faith. I'm not going to demonstrate it for you. And pretty soon, over the first six months, that just dropped away. Other things became real to me. I, I was suddenly aware for the first time of what God was doing in my life and, and the commands and compelling call of his, of his uh, son on my life, and I recognized how much I really was a sinner. That's like the first thing. The light comes on in my life and yours, and you say, I, I really am a sinner. I really am desperate Savior. My, my goodness. And, and, and everything I seemed to do felt like sin. I mean, the way I cooked, the way I put on my pants, the way I buttoned my shirt, I was, it was, I was almost overly conscious of this fact. But like my vocabulary, God continued in his awakening and his continued refinement, his continuing change. And now with the warning system on, with my conscience readied and alive, I was much more aware when the line was crossed. Much more aware when I refused to do what my personal trainer wanted me to do to get beyond myself, to really get me into spiritual shape. He knew what was good for me. So he firstly awakens my conscience. Secondly, your personal trainer, the Lord Jesus, arranges your circumstances as he's training you and teaching you. Phil Ackley is a, uh, the principal of our Christian school. At Highland Park Baptist Church, we have an 800-student K-12 Christian school. He's the principal of our secondary school. And Phil is a godly man, tells a wonderful story on himself, so I'm permitted to tell you that when he was in, um, I think it was 7th grade or 8th grade, he got to school early, and with his friend Jim, they had an eraser fight in one of the rooms. Now, this goes back a ways. See, we didn't have whiteboards. And we didn't have, uh, you know, dustless chalk. Uh, these were blackboards with white chalk. And when you erased them, they got real dusty. And sometimes if they were unclean from the night before, there were plenty of dust around. And they were throwing them at each other across the room, dodging. And he says, he threw one right at me, and I dodged it. And it went out the door and hit a, the, uh, a, a man, a, a math professor, who was... Uh, he calls him the ancient math professor in his three-piece suit right there. Well, he hadn't thrown the eraser, but the professor took the two of them down to the dean of boys and said, this is what they did. And so he was given punishment. He was given detention one hour every day for the week. Well, this was Monday, so the first day home, he's an hour late for home. And his mom says, well, Phil, where were you? Well, I... Uh you know, Jim and I got uh, uh, playing at the playground and we lost track of time and uh, I'm sorry I'm late. Oh, okay. So the next day he comes home an hour late and um, he said, uh, today uh, I went to the store and looked at the, the, uh, the new baseball cards. 
okay. Because he just walked home from school, wasn't expected on a bus. And, and the third day, he had some other lame excuse, and comes Thursday, he figures to himself as he walks in the door, if I can just get through today, then I got one more day and I'm home free. And his mom says, Phil, would you come and talk to me? So he came in and she said, do you, do you have anything to tell me about why you're late today? Well, no, I, uh, you know, and he lied and he said he knew right at that moment he was busted, you know, knew for certain right there, dead in the water. But he lied anyway, you know, self-protection. And so she pulled out the letter that the dean of boys had sent her on Monday telling her why her son was going to be late every day for the week. See, God had put in the mind of the dean of boys to send the letter on Monday and Phil kept thinking he was okay and lying until his mom caught him on Thursday. In reality, God had arranged the circumstances to confront him on that. I tell you that story for this one point. His mother and he reconciled quickly because they were believers in Christ. And then they wanted to pray together to kind of cement the moment. And all of that to tell you his mother's prayer. Here's the mother's prayer. Lord, catch him every time. Catch him every time. You ever, you ever wonder why when you're driving down the freeway, into Los Angeles and the guy who's late for work leaps across three lanes and cuts you off and blows by and you think to yourself where is a CHP officer when you need one and two minutes later he's in your rearview mirror when his lights are going and he pulls you over for going 75 miles an hour in a 65 mile an hour zone and you think to yourself why how come you're here getting me why weren't you here two minutes ago to get him and the answer is because you belong to Jesus Christ and he's involved in personally training you in righteousness. He's involved in training you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and justly and godly in this present age. That's his plan. That's always been his plan from the very beginning. Take a look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, just a few pages to the right of where you are. I think this is declared clearly by the writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 7 to 11. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. You're his children. What son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So you be certain, Christian, your sin will find you out. You be certain that what you do in secret will be shouted from the housetops. That'll happen. Because the Lord Jesus is your personal trainer. He loves you. Too much to permit your sin to go unexposed and he will arrange the circumstances to cause you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires that you might live sensibly and righteously and justly and, and godly in this present age 
He's about training you. He's about loving you. The grace of God has appeared to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's him in us, loving us, who awakens our conscience, who arranges our circumstances, and then thirdly, who assists our courage. Because you know, we can strengthen ourselves to some degree, resolve to act according to the word of God, and we understand as believers in Christ. You know, in the end, in this cooperative relationship, this cooperative equation we call the Christian life, we know deep down that when it comes, we, at some, we're going to have to decide. We're going to have to ask, act. We're going to have to choose. And if Jesus has been awakening our conscience to the right and the wrong, to ungodliness and world desires and what is sensible and righteous and holy, and he's arranging our circumstances so that we're going to actually have to face situations where we're going to have to apply this truth, there's going to come a moment where we're going to have to act. And we're going to have to decide. We're going to have to, to act on our courage. And I think the Lord Jesus is nudging us toward that through the arrangement of the circumstances, the awakening of our conscience, and, and uh, to take us to a place where we will not naturally go. He's wooing our will and he's drawing our hearts to submit to him completely. And frankly, that takes courage. Doesn't it? Joshua had a daunting task to pick up where Moses left off. And the Lord says to Joshua early on, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You'll meditate on it day and night so that you'll be careful to do everything that is written there. And then you'll make your way prosperous. Then you'll have success. Have I not commanded you, Joshua? Be strong. Be courageous. Do not worry. Do not be dismayed or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. With you to assist in the moments when you have to act, in the moments when you have to, have to finally decide and finally say, okay. And really, that's remarkably like genuine repentance because that's really the courageous choice of turning to God from idols. We resolve by the grace and the Spirit of God and the strength to no longer live for ourselves, but to now follow Christ. And he's escorting us across the line of decision with a firm hand in our back, assisting our courage to make that decision because he's arranged our circumstances and awakened our conscience now to act. And we'll do whatever it takes. In fact, that's really what follows here in Titus chapter 2. Look at verse 14. He gave himself so that we might be redeemed from every lawless deed. And he was going to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. He's in the process of that change, escorting us, assisting our courage. I like the way it's described, by the way, um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 11. But really in the Living Bible paraphrase, it seems to be written really well. If you know the book of 2 Corinthians, this is after Paul's stinging rebuke of 1 Corinthians. And here's what he says to the Corinthians. I'm no longer sorry I sent you the letter, though I was sorry for a time, realizing how painful it would be to you, but it hurt you only for a little while. Now I'm glad that I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain turned you to God. It was a good kind of sorrow you felt, the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have so that I need not come to you with harshness. 
For God sometimes uses sorrow in our lives to help us turn away from sin and to seek eternal life. We should never regret his sending it. But the sorrow of the non-Christian is not a sorrow of true repentance and does not prevent death. Just see how much good this grief from the Lord did for you. You no longer shrugged your shoulders, but became earnest and sincere and very anxious to get rid of the sin that I wrote you about. You became frightened about what had happened and longed for me to come and to help. You went right to work on the problem and cleared it up. You have done everything you could to make it right. You see why? Making the decision demands some courage because here you are really turning away from self-protection and self-decision to do what your trainer tells you, to be guided by the awakened conscience and the arranged circumstances, and now he assists your courage to make the step of obedience. It's just like the song of David in Psalm 51, I think, where, where he says, I'll do anything to walk again in your grace, anything to walk again in your love, anything that the joy of my salvation will be restored to me. That's because the trainer has brought you to that spot. It takes courage to repent. It takes courage to act on the circumstances that may be before you. You know what it means? It really means... It really means taking those magazines out from their hiding place and throwing them in the trash. That's what it means. It really means, if you're going to act in courage, to take the impulse that's been on you for some time and find a ministry to serve, to give yourself away to a place or a person. It means that when you say no, you mean it. And it means that when you say yes, you follow through. That takes courage. And Jesus will assist you every step of the way. It means that when the Lord Jesus speaks to you in your conscience, in your time of prayer, or as you're reading his word, or as someone speaks, or as you attend church, and as he speaks to you, you will finally do what he's been prompting you to do. That's what it means. If Jesus is training you to live righteously and sensibly and godly in this present age, it means that when he exposes your sin, and he will, and it's painful, or he takes you to a dangerous place emotionally or spiritually and it's fearful it means that you will trust him that he knows what he's doing you know I remember when these all three things coalesced in my own life I was at a conference way back at the beginning of my Christian experience in Southern California and the speaker was speaking and I was there I think for a week or something and uh boy, there was a moment when what the speaker said really pierced my heart. He was talking about the whole issue of forgiveness and the idea that if you have offended somebody else, you need to go to that person and ask them to forgive you. Not just because it's right to do, but it actually ministers to the person who's maybe holding a grudge or some anger against you. It creates an opportunity for reconciliation. And you do that this fellow said, even if you're just partially wrong, even less than 50% wrong, you take the part you're wrong for and you say, will you please forgive me because I did these things that are wrong. And I had never heard it quite like that. And suddenly my conscience was awakened because I recognized in that moment, because the personal trainer was working on me, that what I had called witnessing to my parents was argument and contention. 
And I couldn't hide behind that Christian statement about it being witnessing and sharing Christ. No, it was argument and contention and angry at that. And that was wrong and insulted to my parents. So now I got this thing burning in my soul. My conscience is alive on that issue. And so I got home and I walked up the stairs and lo and behold, he had arranged the circumstances for me. Because there in the kitchen, alone, with none of the other family members around, were my parents. It was now or never. I was going to do it or not. Well, he assisted my courage. And so as I gulped and plunged in, in spite of the knot in my stomach, the feelings that were rising, and I asked them, please forgive me for my contention and my argumentative nature. That's wrong. The barriers between my parents and me just evaporated. And in that moment, I now recognize, because I'm looking at Titus chapter 2, the Lord Jesus, my Savior and my personal trainer, had trained me to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and at this moment live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present moment. He'd done that for me because he loved me so much. He wasn't going to let me sit as I was. He's moving me along the way. Now, i got to tell you, it's still hard for me to ask somebody to forgive me. Is it for you? It's still hard to do sometimes. You just hate being wrong. You know when you know so much about the Bible now? You're not supposed to be wrong anymore. That's not true. We have, it happens to us all the time. But it's, it's easier. I'm not saying I don't get a knot in my stomach. But it's easier because I know an awakened conscience where I've given offense and an opportunity that surfaces by coincidence as my circumstances have been arranged by the Lord Jesus himself. And now as I feel the impulse of his love and, and the obligation and all that is in me by the Lord Jesus to step over and say, would you please forgive me? I recognize because of my experiences that that's a good thing. And it leads to great joy and a great sense of peace. And every episode becomes a little bit easier and easier along the way. Because he's training me. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Has that ever happened to you, something like that? See, we're all being and all experiencing the grace of God that instructs us. Jesus is active living in you. He's training you for eternity. He's training you to be his and he will not stop until he's done. Now, I don't know what he's prompting you to do because he's training each of you in a different way. But he's prompting you to do something, isn't he? Maybe even today. Perhaps he's already made you aware in your conscience of that which you have done that's wrong that which needs reconciliation. Maybe he's even arranged the circumstances and you've seen that person or been in that place where you need to make the adjustment. Maybe even more than once. 
He's already set it up for you. He invites you to trust him that he will assist your courage if you resolve to obey and lead you to that new and exciting moment. It's the kind of thing that we should consistently go back to in our prayer life, the whole notion of what Christ calls us to and the invitation to be his children, men and women of God. I met a man named Dr. Wu when I was in Beijing uh, just last May. And I got the, the privilege of teaching in the seminary in Beijing and the seminary in Chengdu. And I met this man whose name is Dr. Wu. Dr. Wu is a very small, unassuming Chinese man. He's 85 years old. 85 years old. Between 1956 and 1979, he spent 23 years on a collective farm. Oh, but I didn't tell you that Dr. Wu is the man who wrote the definitive Chinese Hebrew grammar in the late 40s. He's a brilliant theologian. But they had him hoeing cabbage for 23 years. In fact, his daughter was six months old when he was taken away in 1956. He didn't see her again until she was 23, lost her whole childhood. And I had the extraordinary privilege of sitting across the table from Dr. Wu at lunch. And I said, Dr. Wu, tell me if you would please what the Christian church in America can pray for Chinese Christians and Chinese pastors. How can we pray for you? I mean, I don't, you, if you've ever been to Beijing, 1.2 billion people in that country. There's a lot of Chinese people in China. Do you know that? It's a, I've never seen so many Chinese people in one place. It's huge. And the Spirit of God is moving all over China. Here's what he said to me. Pray that the Holy Spirit would strengthen Christian pastors so that they would teach and preach and witness. This is a man who's 85 years old, 23 years on a collective farm, and he said, and never give in. To be faithful, he said, faithful to the truth. And then he paused and said, and fearless. If Christ is going to take your life, and he will, and make you his own, and he will, he will awaken your conscience and arrange your circumstances and he will assist you at the moment of your fear and courage. Be fearless. Be fearless. You know, at this conference, you're going to hear a lot about the love of God for you personally. And it should be a tremendous encouragement to you. I hope that it wonderfully changes all of our lives as we just sit and bathe in the wonder of God's personal love for us. But I kind of guess along the way, he's going to do something in your life in the next three days. He's going to awaken your conscience in a certain fashion about some issue. And he may even arrange your circumstances so that you'll have to deal with it immediately. I want to ask you this. Will you permit your personal trainer to draw you across the line, to assist your courage, so that you will do what he asks you to do. It's going to take you beyond yourself. It's going to take you way past your comfort zone. But as he promised Joshua, he promises you he'll be with you in it, in the moment, so that as you do as he requires, you will have success. You'll have prosperity in that sense spiritually. You see, he's in the business of instructing you and training you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. He's causing that to happen in your life. 
And he's causing you to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Can I give you one final encouragement as I look at these verses that struck me and I think is a worthy exclamation point or a P.S. in all of it? You see what it says about God's love for us? For God, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. It's the grace of God that instructs us. It is not his condemnation that instructs us. You see, all of it is done in love. All is administered for our spiritual welfare. And all because we do not deserve it. But we need it desperately. How many loves you that much? And they'll never let you go. Will you pray with me? Father, we're so thankful that you love us and ignite our hearts and our lives to a new day at every turn. We're always surprised your mercies are new every morning. Father, I pray that you know well in the hearts and minds of all those who are here what is in our heart and in our mind. Lord, I pray you'll awaken our conscience this morning. Maybe you've already done that. You've pricked it before on a particular issue or more than one. I pray you'll do that just now. And then I pray that you'll take all of your servants here, all of your children, all of the trainees that you're involved with, and you'll arrange their circumstances to confront the moment where they will have to have courage and do. And then, Lord, as they obey, would you assist that courage as they step across the line? And would you bless that obedience that they would be encouraged to increase their response to your awakening conscience so that every time we face with your training, we willingly say yes to you and no to ourselves. So that in the end, we would share in your holiness, your righteousness, your purpose, and that the honor and praise that might accrue to our lives is simply transferred to the one who's really caused it all, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has loved us with everlasting love and grace. I praise you for your deep personal involvement in my life and in every life here that trusts you. We rely upon you, Lord. We can do nothing of ourselves. And in that, we're confident and liberated and free. Praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.